0: Welcome back to another exciting week in Deuteronomy. Before we get going in our text today, just a couple of announcements. First, Advent Week 4 is coming up this Sunday. If you want to join us, please do so in person. Otherwise, you can join us online for the live stream at 9 o'clock. There will be no programming moving forward for the next two weeks. Programming starts again in Deuteronomy on January 6th. I'm excited to see you guys. Alright, let's get into the text. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 19, as I had said. And to start off, I just want to share a story. How many of you have that sibling, right? That person that just pushes your buttons. That person who is able to know every thought that you're thinking, or at least close to it, but decides to not be helpful in any way, shape, or form. If I could just use that image to describe a person, the person I'm talking about is my sister, When I was younger, she found every opportunity to make sure that my life was just nothing but suffering. And I don't mean light teasing or the ability to, uh, you know, mock me or whatever. I'm talking about finding that one thread, that one thing in my life that sustained me and cutting that cord. Things like being the first to the TV and choosing some stupid show or channel or whatever, and then we'd have to argue about who gets the remote or whenever was my time to do the dishes. And I think I shared this. When I do the dishes, I'd get so close. There'd be three, four bowls left for me to wash. And what does my sister do? She comes up to the sink, and she puts a cup right into the sink, and she looks at me and smiles. Not a nice smile. The smile that makes you go, if mom and dad weren't here right now. The thing I could get away with. As I grew up, my sister and I had this same relationship, and over time, it got worse. Actually, over time, I found my place or I found myself in a place where I looked at her and I thought, "This is the scum of the earth. This is not even a human being that I'm dealing with anymore. All she is to me is nothing more than an annoyance. An aggravation, a frustration, any word you want to use. That is the image I had of my sister. In fact, when I grew up, I decided not to talk to her anymore. I decided to block her phone number, delete her phone number, and anytime anybody shared news about her, I go, eh, okay. That's where I found myself. So, what does this have to do with the text? Well, I'll let you know starting in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 19. The first thing that we're talking about tonight is cities of refuge. So exactly what is a city of refuge? A city of refuge is a city set apart from the other cities at the time. So Moses instructed the Israelites, hey, go into this land, make three cities of refuge, and these cities will be separate and at a distance away from all the other cities that you guys live in. And the purpose of the cities of refuge is for the manslayer to escape to. So, these cities were intended for people who accidentally killed another human being. In fact, the very illustration that we're giving in the text is a person who goes out into the field, and they're chopping down a tree, and the head of their axe slips off, cuts the neck or the head or whatever does enough damage to the other person they were with to the point where that person dies so the person who's chopping down the tree whose axe had slipped off would then run to a city of refuge and find themselves in a place where they were safe but safe from what? that's what the text answers to they're safe from what's called the avenger of blood The avenger of blood is the person who is related to the person that died in some significant way. So much so that it's their responsibility, if this happens, if that person dies, it's their responsibility to exact avenge. Not revenge. Avenge. And we need to distinguish the two of these. See, revenge is a person who is maliciously, going after another human being knowing they're innocent. But that person wronged them. So my example that I shared is if I intentionally went after my sister to kill her. That's revenge. Because she did me a wrong so I'm going to tenfold do her a wrong. Now, avenging in this situation is if the person who... um, had that axe head slip off, was considered ill-intently murdering another human being. Then it was the job of the Avenger of Blood to kill that person. So why so tense? Why so serious? Well, first of all, the cities of refuge were created because of human emotion. And I only laugh because I'm one who knows that human emotion is very unstable. So what happened is, even if the manslayer was innocent and went to a city of refuge, then another person, the avenger of blood, could still chase after them. And that is why the specific distances are laid out in the text. Because these distances were supposed to allow the innocent manslayer to flee without risking their own life, to get into a walled city where the avenger of blood cannot approach them. But the one who intentionally kills, this is the avenue that we're going to call murder. But the one who intentionally kills is a person that hates their neighbor so much so that they lie in wait. The city, city of refuge, the cities of refuge, are not a place for the intentional manslayer, for the murderer. In fact, God lays out so clearly that it is the job of the avenger of blood to go out, find the, the convicted, murderous manslayer, and kill them. But if the innocent manslayer was killed by the avenger of blood, this would be a miscarriage of justice. Because innocent blood has been spilled. And if innocent blood was spilled, then the entire community that that avenger blood belonged to would be estranged from God. So why was this so important to God? We'll get to that after we talk about questions one and two. So why does God despise the shedding of innocent blood? Well, the first thing is humankind was made in the image of God. and Now, that is a phrase I know you've heard and I know that you've experienced, but what does it mean? Well, to be made in the image of God and God's likeness includes a few parts of the parts we're going to talk about is one who c- carries the authority of God. In Genesis, the authority of God was given to man. They were to reside over all of creation. It was their job to make sure that everything was solid. God gave them this ability. God gave them this responsibility. God gave them his responsibility. That is what it needs to be made in the image of God that we're talking about tonight. There's more parts to it. We'll get into that as we go forward. So another way to think about being made in the image of God that works for me is back in the day, way back in the day, during the time of Roman civilization, at its peak, they had emperors. And those emperors would have busts created of them or stone statues that are just the shoulder and the head. And these busts would be placed in different, market or, well, different houses of worship throughout his entire land. And the people's responsibility was to then go to these houses, look at the emperor's face, bow down, and worship him. To pay homage to him. So much so were these busts important that if anybody broke them or dropped them or wrecked them in any way, shape, or form, or even just disregarded them, it was like disregarding the authority of the emperor himself. In fact, if one did those things any of those things, their life was on the line. And that same picture is transferable to what we're talking about being made in the image of God. One who intentionally murders another human being completely denies that person's godliness, if you will. That person's imageness. So much to the point that murdering another human being was an offense to God himself, an attack on God. That is why the shedding of innocent blood was so despicable to God. Because human beings are set aside and different. And to deny a human being the right to live is to deny God. So then the community would be estranged from God until they atoned for the murderer in their midst. It was the community's responsibility, whether it being that immediate family or that township, that had to deal with the guilty manslayer. Well, actually to deal with the avenger of blood who wrongly murdered the manslayer. And then we get to this point in verse 14. It's a very strange subject. Actually, what happens in verse 14 is that we're talking about land boundaries. And it seems to not be connected to our text at all, except it is. Because again, you remember how important mankind is to God because we're made in God's image? Well, land was also given to the people by God. And I don't mean just a blessing like we see it today where, oh, man, I have land. That's such a blessing. No. God literally set land apart for the Israelites to go into and own. God literally said to the people, one day I will give you land. I will give you a people. And on that land you will raise your families, your cattle, your sheep, and you will live and be sustained from what I have gifted you with. And so if somebody came into that land and they moved any of the property boundaries, that was an offense to the person who owned that land, and that was an offense, again, not to the same point as murder, but an offense to God. Because this was a promise that God had made to his people. And if somebody came into your land and they moved your boundaries and said, hey, all of this land is mine, That's a reason to kill someone. Because we can't trust human emotion. And the fence is so great that it threatens the very DNA of that human being to have their land taken away. And then their emotions are going to blindside them. So the point about bringing up this property boundaries is do not provoke your neighbors. Do not <laughs> provoke your neighbors. It doesn't make the murder justified if provoked. That's not the point. The point is don't go out of your way and provoke your neighbors doing something so intentional as moving a significant landmarker to claim boundaries. That's the point. Don't provoke. It's a matter of respect and honor. Honor. And then we move from that. When we're talking about the manslayer, we talked a little bit about this last week. There's a, what's happening is, is the laws being developed and followed out in the time of Moses. And Moses reestablishes once more, he says, it takes two or three or more witnesses to be able to condemn a man. And more than that, the judge shall inquire diligently of the witnesses and diligently of the accused. And this process is so important to have those two or three witnesses that there is a warning here. And the warning is, in case of a false witness, what do we do with them? Well, let's read in the text. You can join me in verses 19 through 21. Then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I want to break that down a little bit. Then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So if you're a false witness, actually, don't. I don't want to put it on you. Let's say we have a false witness who makes up a story about somebody committing a heinous crime. What the text says is going to happen in that is that that person needs to be purged from the land of Israel. And we talked about purging. Every week we talk about purging almost. It's starting to get me down, but we'll continue. What's happening is that any evil residence in Israel needs to be removed because God is trying to establish for himself a right people, a justified people, a people who's going to show God's glory to everybody around them. So then what do you do to the false witness? You shall do to him, to that false witness, as he had meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Everybody will know what happens to a false witness. It is not going to be a surprise. In fact, this law was put in place to warn people, you have an understanding now of the picture that if you are going to falsify your testimony or witness against somebody, not only is it evil, but we'll purge you. We will kill you. You will be removed from existence. And those around you, the rest of Israel, shall hear and fear. And that person who created the false witness, that false witness will be put to death. And nobody shall pity that person. For it shall be life for life Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. And then the question becomes Jesus talks about this. He talks about the eye for eye philosophy. Summing it up, Jesus says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. And Jesus says, If somebody slaps you, Across the cheek, you're to turn the other cheek. So, why the difference? Why does it seem like the text doesn't agree with each other? And that's the moment where we got to step back, we got to read our text, we got to analyze what's happening. The context of Deuteronomy is judicial the context of Deuteronomy is a justice system. It is saying if somebody intends evil, then we need to counter that evil. See, evil crimes called for an equally stern response. That is the message of Deuteronomy. But what Jesus was talking about is the Pharisees, Sadducees, and others in the community used the eye-for-eye analogy... As a means of justifying revenge. Not establishing justice, but just find that opportunity to get back at the person who did you a wrong. And so Jesus tore them to pieces on that. He said, when dealing with your interpersonal relationships, relationships when dealing with your brother, your sister, or a member of the community, it's not about revenge. It's not about doing enough harm to that person to feel like you got back from them what they took from you. In fact, what Jesus teaches, and no shocker, Jesus teaches love. He says, if somebody does you wrong, you turn the other cheek. Because the greatest offense you can commit is to hate someone so much that though you physically don't do anything to them you have murdered them in your mind and we'll get back to that after questions 3 through 5 so i talked about my sister i talked about the way that she she would poke and prod my buttons and intentionally do things And the severity of the way she pushed my buttons. We don't need to get too much into the details. But trust me, it was enough to create in me a sense of great anger. Not minor annoyances. Great anger. To the point where I looked at my sister and I didn't even see a human being anymore. She was the wind to me. She needed something talk to somebody else. There was an emergency in her life. I don't care, mom and dad. Don't tell me about it. That's where I was at. And you know, the hardest part about this entire lesson I had to learn? Of everything that my sister had done to me in my life, of every button she had pushed and the ways she had hurt me over the years, it wasn't her who committed the greatest offense is me. Because my sister, though annoying, though frustrating, legitimately started documents nonstop, was still willing to see me as human being. And I didn't turn the other cheek. I decided that my sister was not not made in the image of God. And right there, as Jesus says, if you hate somebody, you are committing murder. And I gotta be honest, I murdered my sister in the most figurative way, but enough to the point where the hate was strong and it was a double-edged blade, double-sided blade, and it cut me deep. And it got to a point, though, where the continuation of my faith, of my relationship with Jesus, was dependent, not a part of, but dependent on forgiving my sister. And more than just forgiving, it was dependent on being able to soften my heart and ask for her forgiveness without asking the same. And I believe that is the point of our message. There's this movie that I absolutely loved when I was a kid. It's called The Prince of Egypt. It was done by DreamWorks. It follows loosely the story of Moses. And I say loosely only because there's a few inaccuracies. But regardless, it's a wonderful dramati- dramatization of the story of Moses. And so if you get the opportunity, I'd say watch it. But in the movie, there's this song. It's called Through Heaven's Eyes. And it's sung by a, by a man who's trying to teach Moses the value of life. And what he says in the movie, this is a line that always gets me, is, is what does a single thread on the tapestry think of itself? Yet when that thread is pulled, the entire thing would unwind. And then I extended this image a little more. I don't think we should look at our lives through heaven's eyes. I think we should look at life through heaven's eyes. The lives of everybody around us. People being image bearers. We need to be able to have our Jesus goggles on and see people as people who can be in a relationship with Jesus. People who are loved by God. People who need, who need Jesus. It changes our approach entirely. In the text that we're talking about, though it was the the innocent manslayer that committed the offense, irregardless of loss of life, it was the avenger of blood who sought their revenge that would lose their life. Because when you seek revenge... You're being unholy and dishonoring to who God is. So look at your life. Look at our lives through heaven's eyes. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you are doing in my life. Thank you so much for the place that you have brought me to be able to forgive my sister, to crave that forgiveness, to crave that relationship with her. Thank you for healing that relationship and blessing us siblings and my family with the ability to cross many, many bridges together faithfully. I ask that the students and leaders tonight hearing this message will find the truth in it and hold to it tightly. That we are made in the image of God and that we must look at our lives through heaven's eyes. In your name I pray, amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great night.